Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. Hi, Joe. Hi, Dave. <laughs> well, um, I have no idea where you are right now, Joe. Can you tell me where you are? So I'm in Chile in a city called Puerto Mont, which I believe is very near the place where Che Guevara crossed from Argentina into Chile during his travels as a youth and also where Neruda escaped Chile as an exile into Argentina. They both came through different lakes uh, crossing the border and both those border crossings resonate in my mind, though not in detail, obviously, I'm not remembering it and I could end up <laughs> being completely wrong and conflating them with other stories, but I think that's where I am. <laughs> okay. So in this uh, real or fictional place of transitions, are you yourself in a place of transition? Yeah, uh, I'm actually about to follow, well, I'm about to reverse Chase footsteps again, I think. Uh, I'm going to cross into Argentina for the second time this month, uh, tomorrow. Allison and I have been zigzagging the border a little bit, uh, exploring Patagonia this month. We, we just finished a whole month of hiking in the Andes. Uh, not, I shouldn't exaggerate, not really up in the Andes, but flirting with them at least. And, uh, we're going to go to a place called uh, Bariloche, which is uh, a lake that I think it's getting to be winter there now. So it's going to be really snowy and hopefully we'll still get to do more hiking. Mm. Lovely. <laughs> um, I, wouldn't mind if, I wonder if you wouldn't mind to um, tell your listeners what you look like and where you're sitting right now. Perfect. So this is a big moment because I've now asked 120 some people to um, go through this painful rite before they talk to me about their experiences. Uh, and I've made a lot of people uncomfortable <laughs> with this question, which I just love. And uh, to be honest, I, I, knew, I knew all along that I should be thinking about how I would answer. I may have even taken a short stab at it with some of them to kind of encourage them through the awkwardness, but, <laughs> but I haven't really settled on an answer. Um, I was hoping the moment would be spontaneous and something amazing and uh, subconscious would slip out. So I'm buying myself a lot of time right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I look like a bit of a skinhead. <laughs> I just... <laughs> <laughs> shaved my head sans tattoos yeah yeah uh and not not quite i uh, you know 
maybe I'm looking in a mirror as we talk here. You uh, <laughs> have chosen a similar look somewhat, but you've gone further than me. Mm-hmm. So I, my hair is maybe like um, a quarter of an inch because I just cut it yesterday and I've got a beard and I have blue eyes that I'm really proud of that I feel like may have stamped a certain character on me. Mm-hmm. And... I have a large mouth <laughs> and I'm wearing my favorite sweater, which is uh, light blue and knitted wool and makes me feel like a real traveling type. It's like a uh, comfy, but uh, uh, pra- pragmatic or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Useful. I think it carries some message also. Mm-hmm. And it's where I am. Right now I hear the wind clattering the window next to me. Uh, I'm sitting in a kind of hostel that's empty, except for me and Allison, uh, in a room with white painted walls that are vertical wood panels. Um, that are beveled on one edge. It's a familiar pattern that I've seen a lot, but I don't have the vocabulary despite having painted countless surfaces like this in my past. Uh, But it's a pretty plain um, kind of workmanlike place, kind of spare, but there is a portrait of a sheep on the wall and also a crucifix, a very tiny crucifix on an otherwise bare wall and a TV. Okay. Well, um, Joe, I'm hosting this podcast, or at least interviewing you, and yet I don't actually know a whole lot about your whole project. So I wonder if you could just briefly describe your project to me and how we came to this moment of conversation across a couple thousand miles. So first of all, thank you for answering the call to step in for this special 50th episode. I can't believe that it made it to 50 episodes somewhere early on when I was constantly asking myself whether it was worthwhile (laughs) embarking on such an endeavor. I thought 50 episodes would be good. I thought that would be a year, one week, one episode per week. So I thought when I hit 50, that could be it. And that would be something to be proud of. So I don't plan to quit now. So something has changed. There is something to explore uh, as we reflect on this episode. But yeah, over a year ago, I moved to Spain with my wife, Allison. We started working online, both of us working remotely. So the, the need to stay in one place was removed from our lives and we realized how affordable it was to move around Europe and we took off. Originally, we were going to stay in Spain, but we ended up going to 20 countries in one year around Europe. And before we left, I was just, I mean, it's a lifelong dream to live in Spain Um, 
And I was thinking about how I could maximize the experience, how I could take the most advantage of this moment, this presumable year that we'd be traveling. And I had a vague sense that in Europe, I would meet far more incredible people, like the density of incredible people coming in in and out of my life would be higher than at any other point thus far. Because we've traveled in Asia and we've traveled in Latin America and I think the volume of tourists or the attraction level is different. And I'm fascinated by this idea of how places filter people. And Europe is such a meeting point, such a destination for so many different kinds of people. And particularly, I knew we were going to try to reach out and meet some refugees from Syria. That was one of our goals for the year. We wanted to, to go learn their stories, why they left and why they went, why they chose Europe. And so that was kind of pillar around which I built this empathy machine. <laughs> That's what I've been calling it mm. in my mind. That's kind of my ambition for it, <laughs> that it would generate empathy in myself that I would try to push myself to meet as diverse a group of people as I could and listen to people as far different from me and my own experience as I could. Mm. And far off from that, I hoped I could stimulate a little empathy in all the people that I interview. That I hoped this could be a profound experience for them to meet a stranger who was interested in them, who invested the time to connect with them and prod them to think about their own lives. And then far distant from that, far, far distant is my hope that there is some audience out there <laughs> that might be inspired by the example of someone who is obsessed with listening. And I've, tried to fight the urge to insert myself too much into these episodes up until now mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, though some have uh, suggested that my intros uh, can be a little lengthy and boring <laughs> <laughs> or obtuse or abstract uh, and then also just the way that I approach titling and marketing uh, their, other people's stories, I do end up inserting myself a lot, I think. Hmm. Um, but I've held back my own stories for the most part until now. I thought as I was reflecting on how I could make this 50th episode distinct, I thought now is a good time to um, tell my stories. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Um, when you, I love that you call it an empathy machine. And you know what my <laughs> mind immediately went to was um, this, the, I think it was like the sticker that Bob Dylan had on his guitar, this machine kills fascism or fascist. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like such a great, I mean, I think that's amazing because I really do think that empathy is a great tool for fighting like that tendency 
in humans to, um, yeah, to try to manipulate or um, hurt others. So I really love that you call it that. Okay, well, I have to take this moment to uh, pull back the curtain a little bit further and just be very explicit that we have Trump to thank for this podcast (laughs) because this is a direct answer to his campaign message. I was in Chicago teaching at DePaul University in an international student program. And I watched the faces of my students when he started announcing some of the things that he he was uh, hoping (laughs) his ambition, which, which is playing out now. Um, And I just thought I'm so lucky to be, well, as my grandpa would say, it's not luck. It's uh, there's some design behind it probably. Uh, I'm so fortunate to be in a position where I'm exposed to people who have traveled. It's really my students that inspired me and, and this fear that like his message might win out in the U S and people I love might start hurting other people I love. And I, I just wanted to be a connection point. So yeah, this is directly opposed to what I see as, the potential for fascism in his message. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since we're kind of on this topic, I'm really curious um, if and how you've thought about the privilege of being able to travel in this time where, you know, um, all over the world, people are trying to close borders to more and more people and not open them, um, at least to certain kinds of people. And so, um, has that is that something you've thought about in your travels? Absolutely. Um, that's such a an important question to me. I don't even know where to begin. But that's exactly why I wanted to call you in to kind of call me to start reflecting and articulating my ideas about these things. Um, through the course of doing this project, at one point I I went to the archive in the city in Germany that my family emigrated from. Hmm. Last uh, last year I did that. Uh, They came and Wolfgang, this archivist in Dusseldorf, couldn't find anything for me. I was ill-prepared. I just had a name and some dates. And we didn't find any record of my great-great-grandpa. But it prompted me to talk to my grandpa. And he said that um, Jürgen, my great-great-grandpa, left Dusseldorf because of World War I. Hmm. So I've kind of taken that and run with it. I still need to do more research to pin down the facts. But, um, you know, it suggests something that I had never thought about before, which is that my family is a refugee family. Mm. Maybe that's just because I was on my way to meet, you know, refugees in Greece when I started thinking about that. But as an American, I feel a particular um, complex set of emotions 
around the idea of borders because I feel this loss that I don't know my heritage, you know? It's somewhere else. America is kind of, I mean, it's just so new and unknown and such a mix, you know? So I want to perforate <laughs> as many borders as I can. Like, mm. I think that's what makes America so special. That's just so deep in me, the idea of freedom of movement, um, you know, the American dream to better your life. Like, so I've been trying to examine what moves other people to go, to leave. It's such a hard choice. And, and what do they find when they go? So I've talked to refugees and to lots of tourists and also lots of expatriates, people that have gone for a long time to live other places for jobs or love or some dream and I don't have an answer to my question but I just have all these impressions this consensus that literally everybody moves literally I mean there's almost no one who is inhibited by a border <laughs> you know like in some way um people move even internal domestic movement counts you know yeah so yeah yeah thanks well i was i was thinking of um different questions i wanted to ask you um one of i thought of one of my favorite interviewers who is krista tippett who records the show on being um and as you may know she always asks the people she interviews um if they had a sense of spirituality um, that they grew up with in their childhood and if and how that might have affected their current um, work or vocation. So I would love to hear any reflections you have on that. So the first overseas trip that I ever took was um, because of my spirituality. <laughs> It was a short-term mission trip to Honduras uh, when I was 17. Um, and I was just utterly silenced. <laughs> my listening began then. I was listening through my eyes, through every sense that I had. I mean, the, my sense of smell was never stronger <laughs> than in Honduras. The, the, I still think of Katakamas uh, when I smell wood fires, like, or if I hear um, chickens, it just, that's deep, deep in my, my soul now. And so travel's always been connected with, you know, this imperative to share, to, to give and to learn, to exchange, you know, materially and spiritually. Um, and I've gone on, you know, multiple mission type trips, missions of varying lengths since. And I would say my view of mission work 
of you know evangelizing or sharing the gospel has changed um, a lot since those times. And I would say that <clears throat> I see the observer effect as, you know, my way of being spiritual now, which is very gentle, I hope, and very open and very curious. It's beautiful. So I, as I was thinking about you and your um, curiosity of spirit, um, I thought of this poem by Yeats, The Song of Wandering Angus. Do you know it? No. This is perfect. Um, I'll read it to you and tell you why I think of you when I read this poem and see if you have any other reflections. But he says this, I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. And when moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little, little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor and I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among the long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done. The silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. So um, there's two really beautiful images in that that I really love. And one is the fire in the head. And um, when you talk about curiosity, that's like what I think about is this sort of like this fire in your head that like leads, draws you to um, adventure and to the kinds of travel that you do. And also, you know, I think of, I, I think for Yates at least, um, this fish that this trout that turns into a maiden and runs away and he, he chases her for the rest of his life and grows old with wandering. Um, I think he's talking about sort of his muse of sorts. Um, yeah. So I, I don't, I guess I don't have actually a very good well-framed question, but I wonder if you have any well, reflections on what you're, what is the fire in your head or, or the muse that you're continually chasing, if you could um, talk about that more. Mm -hmm. I knew you'd come through for me. I knew you'd have a poem. <laughs> I just knew it. <laughs> I just knew that I would be enthralled and that it would become a poem that I revisit for the rest of my life. I can feel it already. Um, so well done. <laughs> So <clears throat> I flicker back and forth between whether this fire in my head is an unease or like a secure, joyous wonder, you know, if I'm fleeing or seeking or 
you know, I definitely was discontented by my upbringing in a suburb of Chicago. I felt deep unease. I felt a lack of culture. I gave myself wholeheartedly to TV and I regret that. And I mourn that every day um, since. And I still fight, you know, <laughs> the urge to, yeah. I still zone out and, and take in, you know, a lot of useless weight in my, my mind. But, but this fire does consume it. You know, it's something that is angry and earnest and devours other things, you know, mm. it does pull me. Um, so one other thing I'll add to it is that I taught in Korea for a couple of years and I had a student who was an education major and he changed my life. Uh, his English name is Dexter. Uh, his Korean name is Sundo. And uh, he is the one that taught me the, the meaning of the word educate, <laughs> the etymology of educate. I went all the way to Korea to discover the Latin root of the word of my vocation, you know, mm. <laughs> I just love the delicious irony of that, you know, uh, and I'm just forever grateful to Dexter. Um, it's, you know, to lead out. Mm. E ducate or e ducat. I'm not so sure of the Latin, but it's to lead out. And, you know, I was in a really vulnerable state there i was that was the longest i'd been outside the u.s when he told me that and i was so hungry in my career uh in settling on my my vocation and mm. i think that kind of aggravated my obsession it kind of equated travel with education for me and so my goal now is just to squirm outside myself as much as time and opportunity will let me and discover you know like i said an empathy machine i think empathy is stepping into the other's experience and mm. i just feel it as a duty and as our only hope as human beings you know if we can achieve that then we have a chance for peace and understanding yeah. I'm so overblown. <laughs> I <laughs> this is why this is why I hold back. I uh, <laughs> but but I knew you would pull this out of me. I knew you would help let me uh, get philosophical and lyrical and I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> well it's beautiful. I mean and um Right, like in the for Angus, his muse like leads him. I don't know. You, I, I feel like you don't really know if he ever finds her, but um, what you do know is that because of his search for her, he like sees the long dappled grass and the silver apples of the moon and the golden apples of the sun, and is plucking that fruit all along his journey. Um, yeah, and that, that's what I'm hearing in you is that you know 
whatever that fire is that that led you to go explore like and i see this in your life joe all the time that you're constantly plucking these um beautiful fruits wherever you're going and i i love just hearing you talk about um being present to um, whatever space you're in so it's really lovely well it's mango for you <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I want to share this. I want to get this on record today. I read a story by one of my favorite writers who is Primo Levi. Mm-hmm. And it's called the story of a coin. So he survived Auschwitz and he walked basically all the way home when he was liberated. I mean, he took some train trips, but he's, he was Italian and uh, when he got home, so he wrote about this in, in a book called The Truce, His Journey Home, which is something that I read really carefully last summer when we crossed his path. It was in Austria, which was the final stage before he got back to Italy. And I was really excited to be reading, you know, that journey. I, we weren't going to his home last year. So that was the closest I could get to replicating his path. And I'm going to spoil it a little bit. Uh, He gets home, obviously, (laughs) but I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but I had big expectations for his arrival, some catharsis, you know, and no one even knew to expect him. And the book ends like, he just passes through Innsbruck and he crosses the Alps and he gets to Turin and it just all happens so fast. I was just reading and I was reading on a Kindle and you know how sometimes the percentages mislead you. I thought I had 10% more, but it was all notes. Oh no. <laughs> and it abruptly ended with him saying, and no one even knew to expect me. And I just was shattered by that you know um he survived this momentous journey and he couldn't even describe you know like it just hurt so much that that wasn't part of the story the the reunion wasn't in the story you know anyway that's part of what i wanted to say but today i read um this other short story called the story of the coin and He got home and he found later in his pocket this coin (laughs) that he didn't remember Hmm. from Auschwitz. So years later, he found it again in a drawer and he started thinking about it and he investigated this coin and found the story, which is quite interesting. And I won't spoil that, but everyone should go read the story of a coin. And that's what I love about him. And that's what I aspire to do to whether it's intentional or not, just examine what sticks to me, you know, mm. whether it's a fruit with this that latches onto me and later I find it, you know, just what I'm doing in this podcast is asking people to look at what they've brought from the places they've been and tell me that story, you know, mm-hmm.
My deep, deep thanks to Dave. He's a treasured friend from already too long ago who reads me poems without prompting and dreams of healing the land, building a gentle farm with his family. I forgot to get him to describe where he is, but it's Portland, Oregon, my favorite city on earth. I hope he stays till I can get back. Take a moment and look at kiva.org. It's just one way to make a small difference in the world. But really, that's my urging. Go make a difference. Thank you for listening 50 episodes in. I really cannot thank Dave enough for accepting my invitation to host this special episode 50, An Empathy Machine. It's only part one. In a few days, I'll publish part two, The Summing Up, Burma, where Seth met Mr. Book, in which I tell one of my own travel stories, one I've told a lot. As some of you know, uh, I go by Seth and Joe, depending on when you meet me. Keep an eye out for that. It was in college that I met Dave, the first time we ever had a conversation while he was manning the front desk of our dorm. I walked up and he handed me what he was reading, Annie Dillard's Teaching a Stone to Talk. To that gift, I owe untraceable changes in my heart whose glacial work continues still. Annie Dillard wrote the most enigmatic and graceful summation of an understanding of life that I have found yet. She says, Any careful word may suggest a route, may begin a strand of metaphor or event out of which much or all may develop. <laughs>